0: weekend a violent mob besieges a refugee home. On its peak day, the protests count around 3,000 bystanders, applauding and cheering as neo-Nazis set fire to a residential building called Sunflower House. The riot became widely known as one of the most severe xenophobic incidents in the newly reunified Germany. All this happened only two years after the citizens of the GDR, or DDR, had decided they finally wanted freedom of travel and freedom of expression. Two years after their protest had accomplished what no one had managed before them. The entirely peaceful overthrow of a repressive regime. We are the people had been the motto of the only peaceful revolution in history. But how on earth did we come from the peaceful Monday demonstrations? to terrible right-wing pogroms like the one in Rostock-Lichtenhagen? In this podcast, I would like to engage with a film which tries to answer exactly this question. We Are Young, We Are Strong, a 2014 film by director and filmmaker Bohan Kobani. This podcast is part of an assignment for the EPICUR course European Identity in Cinema, which was held by the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in February 2021. In the course, we analyzed the way identity, especially European, national and transnational identity, is expressed through film. But a film on right-wing extremism in East Germany doesn't refer to Europe in any way. Why did I choose this film as a topic then? Well, firstly, because identity, also national identity, plays a crucial role in Kobani's film, but I will talk about this later on. I chose the topic not only because I think it's a very important topic in the entire German discourse, at least it should be, it also concerns me personally. So I would like you to keep in mind my potentially biased stance towards the topic. In the last two years, we have celebrated the thirtieth anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the reunification of Germany in 1990. Old stories have resurfaced, new questions have been asked, and old and new problems analyzed. Not only by the media and politics, but also by me. My name is Siska and I was born in 1999 in East Germany. I'm a Nachwendekind, a part of the generation of children born in reunified Germany. One of those children who have grown up with all the privileges of democracy, free travel and a consumerist society, but who still carry with them the DDR socialization of their parents. I've grown up with stories from the old days, how they were different from how we live now, and how the generation of my parents had fought for my freedom. But still, the reappraisal has just begun. In recent years, East Germany has sadly become famous for a swing to the right. This is something which is absolutely not exclusive to East Germany, but which is sadly quite present. So what does all this have to do with identity? Quite a lot, actually, says Bohan Kobani through his film. In We Are Young, We Are Strong, he draws a picture of a fractured society. It introduces broken characters who still grapple with experiences from the past, a difficult present, and an uncertain future. It is, first and foremost, a coming-of-age drama. Uh, Its title already hints towards this direction, but in a way the film can also count as part of a historical reappraisal of the post-reunification period. The question remains whether its narrative is effective enough to answer its own questions, but (laughs) let's get into it first. Before I dive into the film, I want to give you a little bit of background on the incident itself. First, because I think it's needed to understand the film and partly because it basically tells the plot by itself. So Rostock is a port city in East Germany and it had a prosperous position. It held the DDS shipyards and freight trade. After the reunification, the shipbuilding industry had to close down. Rostock lost its importance and numerous workers lost their jobs. In the time prior to the riots, the centre Reception Center for Refugees, in short, Zast, was completely overloaded. Asylum seekers had to camp in front of the building under disastrous conditions. In late August of 1992, tensions were rising in the city. It's not as if officials weren't warned, Actually, one week before the incident, an anonymous warning letter was published, menacing violence if the foreigners would not leave. When the weekend came, mostly adolescents gathered in front of the Zest. Day by day, more and more people joined the rioters. The behavior of local officials and politicians was heavily criticized. Some did not act quickly and resolutely enough, some rejected any responsibility, and some even were on holiday. On the last day, Monday the 24th of August, the disaster was evacuated and now the violence exponentiated and turned towards the Sunflower House, where contract workers from Vietnam lived. There was an atmosphere of public festival, with stalls selling currywurst and beer to the rioters. When the police actually retreated in the late evening, violence broke loose completely. Molotov cocktails were thrown, the flats inside the building racked, while an ecstatic crowd of three thousand people chanted Germany for the Germans and foreigners out. The remaining contract workers, who had not left the building yet, had to flee for their lives through a roof hatch into another building. Let me remind you, even though it seems unbelievable, these were the real events, which happened in 1992. The film We Are Young, We Are Strong was released in 2014 by writer Martin Behnke and director and co-writer Bohan Kobani. It's shot mostly in black and white and multilingual, meaning it shows scenes in both German and Vietnamese. Since the Sunflower House is still inhabited to this day and new buildings have been built on the grounds in front of it, it was shot in a deserted prefabricated building in Halle instead of Rostock. Quite interestingly, the film tries to stay very close to the actual events of the weekend, not only in its chronology, but also in its looks. A British documentary from 1993 called The Truth, Lies in Rostock provides a basis for that. It features interviews with protesters, local politicians, refugees and Vietnamese contract workers who were in the house when everything happened. It also shows footage in chilling immediacy, shot by the people in the house and journalists on site. Kobani emphasized in an interview with Ufa Fiction how important it was to stay as close as possible to reality, to leave no room for doubt that this is a realistic representation of events. The film includes original footage on TVs in the film and re scenes down to the smallest detail, down to the costume of the protester throwing the first stone. The documentary might be better at displaying the actual events, however, as much of a shocking effect the original footage has on the viewer, there are things, questions about the underlying structures and relation to the present which a feature film can provide more effectively. The film picks it up after the events of the second night and culminates in the attack on the building. It takes a multi-perspective approach to telling the story. It follows different parties through the events of the day. For example, there's Lien, who represents the perspective of the Vietnamese contract workers. She's emancipated, strong, hardworking, and fights for her residence permit. Then there's Martin, a local politician, a nice but weary man. He remains passive and ignores the danger that is coming, completely overwhelmed by the sheer scale of the problem. Instead of acting, he stays at home sleeping or doing sports to calm himself down. The main focal point, however, is a group of teenagers, one of them in particular, Stefan, who is the son of Martin. The group is chilling away the day on the beach or in that VW bus, fighting the police, quarrel and fall in love with each other. Normal teenagers, it might seem, but there's a heaviness among them. They are bored, unemployed, life seems slow and without prospects, The future uncertain and insecure. Also ever-present, an element of neo-Nazism. Swastikas as a poster on the wall, listening to right-winged rock music in the car and shaving one's head bold just for fun. The only ideologically convinced member of the group seems to be Sandro, a dominant and dangerous leader-of-the-pack kind of guy. But why are the others so fascinated by right wing extremism? Discontentment? Rebellion? The plot moves forward when a member of the group, Philip, commits suicide, which hovers over the day like a shadow. And thus, the events take on, tensions rising, full of anticipation for the evening to come. This boredom and restlessness in the kids is recreated quite appropriately. In the actual riots, most of the aggressive were teenagers and young adults. In the interview, Kubani said that he wanted to understand the life those teenagers led and what could drive them to commit such terrible acts of violence. The film actually creates quite an interesting ambivalence. We get to know the teenagers, sympathize with them, root for them, reminded of our own wild years before going off to university or doing others adult life stuff. But at the same time, we are ripped out of this sympathy and alienated by their racist and violent behavior. So why do we identify with those boys? Why are they portrayed so closely when they do something so horrible? To get to know these youngsters means not to judge them prematurely. To understand their inner struggle and the roots for their actions which might seem as the only way to resolve this problem, and to witness them simply being normal teenagers, highlights their breaking point at the end of the film. Breaking. Another key aspect of this film. Not only a nation, a society is fractured and marked by the past, but also all of the characters seem broken, each in their own way. There's Robbie, for example, the most provocative of the teenagers. He seems impulsive, hyperactive, his aggressiveness almost off-putting. But with time, a hurt boy underneath the surface becomes apparent. A boy full of love sickness and uncertainty, who compensates for his sadness with violence. And then there's Jenny, his girlfriend. She acts egotistical and flirts with Stefan despite her boyfriend watching. But at some point, we realize that even this behavior has its dark downside. In a decisive moment, the straightforward Jenny becomes unfathomable, and we realize even she might be using the effects she seems to have on boys to compensate for something inside her. Jens Goldhahn, a sensitive boy, grown up in a sheltered environment. Even though he expresses doubt at every step of the way. His fascination of right-winged ideologies and violence doesn't fit at all into his nature. Is it because he is glad to finally be a part of a group? And in the center of it all stands Stefan. Through him we experience the world and the events. Also, he is incomprehensible, depressed, seemingly indifferent to the conflicts around him, but latently irritable at the same time. He and his father live alone in a house, and seem to be equally tired from life. But Stefan seems to rebel against him, not only as a son, but also on a political level. Also this is a key factor for understanding this film, the conflict between generations. In one scene, Stefan's grandfather says this to Martin. My fathers fought against the Democrats because he was a fascist. And I have fought against my father because I'm a communist. Then you have fought against me because you wanted to be a democrat. And now I'm wondering what Stefan is doing right now." Is this right-wing behavior simply revolt against the parent generation? Additionally, Stefan exhibits this parallel to Philip, the friend who has taken his own life. In a scene in which he and Robbie visit Philip's deserted flat, Stefan stands on the balcony, We hear Robbie reading out Philip's farewell letter to his father, while Stefan balances on the balcony, almost at the verge of falling. The letter reads as follows. Dad, when you're reading this, you couldn't have stopped me. Please don't blame yourself. Nobody has hurt me, and nobody can save me. There's an anger that has spread within me. Every day I lose a day, a week, a month. Memories are vanishing. Today I can't even tell anymore what I've eaten yesterday, where I've been, who I've spoken to. In the beginning there was still grief. That I've got no work, neither do my friends, and that the world is turning the other way now. But then anger added to the grief because I couldn't remember how it had ever been any different than this. How does one continue if there's no before? I look around and notice that many are feeling this way. Grief goes, but anger stays. It has gotten out of control and silence, and now its roar is all we can hear. I don't want to feel this anger. I love you so much. Philip." Sadness becomes anger, and instead of letting his anger consume him, Philip tragically has decided to make an end to it. And in the end, as Philip has said, also Stefan's sadness becomes anger. And in the end he stands on another balcony for the second time, in the burning sunflower house, a wrecked apartment behind him and instead of jumping, he lets his anger consume him and incites the chanting crowd below him. Kobani likes to include questions of identity into his films. Who are you? Where's your home? But what's your answer when the nation and the society you've called home for all your life doesn't exist anymore? Kobani calls it birds without legs. The teens do have freedom, which their parents have fought for, but no ground from which to take off from. So what does this film have to tell us about national identity and the search for home? One of the most important aspects of this film is the past, which hovers above all the characters. The past of the DDR, a nation that had been their point of reference, their point of identification for all their young lives. The reunification process had left traces in everyone it's hardly expressed directly but always expressed in metaphors and transcription Willst du bis in den westen schwimmen do you want to swim to west germany or side notes on the stasi stories from the past like the one from ramona i don't need a dream i want security back in the days we didn't have much but at least we were safe When you had to queue in line for an hour to get strawberries, you got used to it eventually, and when there weren't any left in the end, well, it didn't matter anyway, but... Now we have strawberries, and we're all so free. Being free in the end only means being alone. Früher. That's a past that has disappeared. In my opinion, this is a weak point of the film. Instead of becoming explicit about the reunification, the film remains in vague illusions. The film tells us nothing about the reality of life in the DDR. What exactly has changed except there is more exotic fruit to be had? This is certainly artistic freedom, but it leaves the question open what exactly the struggle is about that the teenagers are going through. One has to listen very carefully from the beginning to catch the crucial information that Philip had lost a job at the shipyard and is unable to find new work. This is something that millions of people from the former DDR experienced during that time. Maybe you have or haven't heard of the Treuhandanstalt. It was an institution which attempted to integrate the state-owned DDR industry into the capitalist system as quickly as possible. Thousands of businesses were closed, millions of people lost their jobs, yet this background information was left in vague, even though it's crucial for understanding the characters. Something that's also striking about this film is its artistry in aesthetics. The sound design contributes very nicely to a build-up of tension. It's minimalistic, like a dull humming accompanied by the knocking of sticks and clapping of hands. I suppose the sound might represent the applause and violence of the rioters. And the moment the boy stands in front of the wrecked furniture, completely aesthetic, the entire sound vanishes, and the tragedy becomes even heavier. One of the most crucial points, however, and that's important for the story, is the stunning cinematography and colour design. Um, The film is kept in black and white for pretty much three quarters of the film, up until the point the group gives an interview to a reporter. The interview itself seems like a real typical interview from the 90s, in colour and grainy from the bad resolution, but after the interview, the image jumps to full coloration. The interview doesn't only represent the stylistic cut, but also the acceleration of the plot. After that, the tone of the entire film changes drastically from artistic, slow and contemplative, to dark and suspenseful, action packed and shocking. The real stuff is only just beginning. And talking about realness, the black and white colour keeps the viewer at the safe distance from the plot. Either by artistic contemplation, or mesmerized by the beauty of the images and the slow pace, but maybe also by the fact that visual representations of the past are often only available as black-and-white footage. When the color kicks in, the viewer is thrown into the story and experiences it in full frightening immediacy. It basically screams to you, this is not the past, this is today. The riots of Rostock-Lichtenhagen have become less and less known, especially in younger generations such as mine. Before watching the film, I had never heard of this incident, and especially with rising tensions in the world and a growing right-wing populism, it's so important that this remains in the public eye, that this remains as part of the remembrance culture. right wing extremism is a real threat, which doesn't remain in the past, but concerns us in the present. And this is a point which the film manages to make very impressively. Actually, it was shortlisted for the submissions for the 88th Academy Awards for the award for best foreign language film, so it must have done something right. And also the sentiments of a post-reunification period come across quite well. Concerning the historical reappraisal of the reunification, the film makes a step into the right direction. However, historical reappraisal of stories which haven't been told so often need more concrete background information in order to be effective. So I hope it became clear why I think this film was fitting in the context of European identity. If not, let me sum it up. European identity is partly a matter of national identity. When the Iron Curtain, the Berlin Wall, fell and was overcome by the citizens, new people with their collective experiences entered the picture of Europe. For 40 years, they had lived in a repressive regime, unable to travel and speak their mind freely. However, it had been a part of their youth and their everyday reality of life. So naturally, they would be asking the question, which value do my experiences have? Where do I fit in? Which country and which society do I belong to now that everything I've known is gone? Well, sometimes, I personally ask myself a similar-ish question. I've been born in a reunified Germany, and I identify as all German. I enjoy the privileges of traveling the world and of buying bananas whenever I want to. But I've grown up in an area where the traces of this odd country are still present at every corner. And I ask myself, do I not sometimes feel like the child of immigrants? whose country simply doesn't exist anymore.